my mother, she didn't graduate from high school. She was a single parent. And she gave us the belief that even though I never figured out why we moved so much, <laughs> I didn't know until I got older that she actually couldn't pay the rent. So we would move like every four, five months. I never even figured it out. I want to be able to know that if my mother did so much for me and she had nothing, I have something. So I have to do something for everybody else. Because if I don't, once again, who will? All right, passengers, your attention. Uh, BN9, we've had more business in area. Welcome back to Deeper Dish. This week's guest is Tyrone Wyman Sr. He's the owner of a restaurant called Ben's Barbecue in the Austin neighborhood. Uh, he's a former executive at Northern Trust Bank. Uh, he's also former head of a philanthropy called Urban Bankers Forum of Chicago, which was the organization that gave out scholarships and internships to high schoolers and college kids. I was also a recipient of this that helped me pay my way through school. So I've known Mr. Weidman for quite a bit of time, but what he's doing now is truly amazing. He's co-owner of Ben's Barbecue, where they're no different than any other restaurant except for Ben's Barbecue hires individuals with a history. If you listen to this episode, you'll find out what the history means. Hope you enjoy it. So today we have Mr. Weidman. I think I refuse to call you Tyrone, even though I'm a grown man. Mr. Weidman was very instrumental in me going to college and helping me get my degree. When I knew him when I was younger in high school, he was the president of Urban Bankers Forum of Chicago, which was an organization that provided scholarships and internships to young men or young folks looking to go to college, not just men, but young folks looking to go to college who might have an interest in going into banking in the future. So, Mr. Wadman, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, you know, where you went to high school. What's your connection to Chicago? Well, I was born and raised here in Chicago. I went to Crane High School. I, too, went to University of Illinois, and I went to grad school. After I did all of that, I really didn't have an idea, like most young folks as I was. I had an opportunity to try out for a professional team and I too was cut. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and so I had to look to do other things. What team was that? The Chicago Bulls. Oh really? Yes. I did not know that. I know. I know. That's why I don't like them today. <laughs> oh really? Seriously? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because they cut you? <laughs> the guy who was accepted was Roland Garrett. He was from New Mexico. So I know so much about him because he's about six seven, six five. I'm about six feet on a given day. And so once I did that, I when I went to my first job interview, which was at the Continental Bank, the big bank with the little bank inside, back then um, there weren't a lot of folks that was black folks that was going into banking. I was interviewed. This was a battery of interviews where there was about six or seven people in the room at one time, and they actually chose folks in the room as you go. And you walked out like a contest, you know. I want him, he goes. And I was the last one left. Of course, I was the only person black that was there. The guy said, well, we either want him in the accounting area or in taxes. And the guy for accounting said, I don't need him. So <laughs> <laughs> I went to taxes. And it was called fiduciary income tax. 
I knew nothing about taxes. All mm -hmm. I knew was uh, accounting. And as I accepted the job, which I made $6,200 a year, I figured that I was going to be able to do something. But when I first got there, what they had me do was to actually count the returns and place them in numeric order by account number. So I did that every day. Uh, we had about 16,000 accounts that we were dealing with. So I was constantly putting things in order. And I said, I can't believe this. I went to school and all I'm doing is counting tax returns. And at that time, we didn't have everything automated. So we had to also complete, you call it an invoice, we call it a debit in order to debit the account for the taxes. So I had to do that. And I did that for about six months. And then they fired someone and they asked me if I would like to be a tax accountant. And to my surprise, when I got my seat, we shared calculators at the time, uh, I sat next to Roland Burris. And Roland Burris and I were, well, I guess when I say deskmates, <laughs> you know, Roland Burris went on to do bigger and better things. And he also was a part of this organization we called the Urban Bankers. He was the first black uh, elected to some of the offices that was there, you know, elected offices. I think he also ran for governor or something like that. I'm not yep. sure. Yeah, he's run, run for quite a few offices. Yeah. And once I did that, I, you know, I went on to another bank and I was totally surprised because I thought when I went from one bank to the other, I was actually recruited from one bank to the other. And I didn't know that they had signing bonuses at the time. I thought they only do that in athletics. When I was recruited, they actually gave me a signing bonus to come from one institution to the other. And at that time, you know, it was a pretty healthy one in the olden days. It was like $10,000 they gave me. And I went to another bank. Which was more than you made at the previous <laughs> bank when you started. That's correct. So as you're navigating all of this, did you have anybody in your family, neighbors, friends, guiding you along to say, oh, hey, you should make this move or this is what's going on? I mean, whether it be in college, in high school, when you were trying out for the Bulls, was there anybody there? That Don't had, say the Bulls anymore. <laughs> or that, that sports team. Was there, was there anybody else there that was kind of guiding you along or being a mentor for the things that you did? All of my brothers and sisters never finished high school. Uh, my mother never encouraged us to go to school because she was busy working two jobs. Mm -hmm. And so it was up to us to really decide whether we wanted to, you know, go to school. And so my brothers and sisters, all of them stayed at home. They now have their GEDs today, but I can't tell you why I decided I wanted to go to school. I really enjoyed school. You know, I went to Crane High School, and at that time, everyone talked about how terrible and bad and stuff like that. And I want to tell you, all through high school and grammar school, <laughs> I never had a fight. That tells you how I got along in high school with other folks that were, were there. And even though we had all kind of gang activity, I never joined a gang, I decided that I wanted to do something different. And nothing, no one can tell me what to do. One of the things I also decided that I wanted to graduate from college. I didn't want to follow the typical stereotype. I didn't get involved with anything uh, that I thought would disappoint my mother, even though she didn't ask me that. I was a virgin until I was 20. I made up my mind that anything that I thought that was going to take from what I had to do, I wouldn't do. I mean, it sounds like at a very early age, without much outside influence, you were driven. 
if it wasn't from home, like where did it come from? I believe strongly that it's not that I was Mr. Goody Two Shoes and you know, I had incidents where people were getting ready to fight or do things, mm-hmm. different gangs. And some of the guys would say, you can't do this, Tyrone. You need to go home. Right. I used to get upset. I'm like, man, I'm down. <laughs> I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm not a coward, you know. And they said, right. no, I want you to, you need to go home. Right. And uh, I would just go home. You know, I would be mad. I'd yeah. be upset. But I didn't, you know, I think about that all the time because something happened to me when I was in fifth grade. At the time, you can order, they call them all occasion cards, where any birthday, I would go out and sell them to help my mother. I used to live about four or five miles from downtown Chicago. And I would walk downtown and I would take these cards with me and I'd be selling them for 10 cents. And I went in front of the Sun-Times building. I don't know what made me go there. And I stood in front of the Sun-Times building and there were cuffs in it came out. He was a writer for the Sun-Times. And I talked to him for a few minutes and I said, I'm selling these cards. I used to make up a story all the time, how I would sell it. I actually was in the Boy Scouts. And so I would tell him, you know, this was for the Boy Scouts. Really wasn't. It was taken home from my mom. And he said, you know something? He purchased probably about 10 cards. It was about a dollar. And he said, yeah, I want you to keep them. And I looked him in the face. And, this, and I tell this story. I was in Washington, D.C. And I told this story in front of the House of Representatives. I talked to him and I said, you know something? I'm going to be downtown. Yeah. I'm going to do the same thing you're doing. Right. And I remember that from fifth grade. And I always kept that in my mind. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get downtown. I'm going to work. You know, I'm going to do things for people. Just Even though he just bought 10 cards, right. I said, I'm going to do something like that. Now, I have a kind of a similar I mean, story. I think that there are high school, college, and even later, there are people along the way that mentored me and helped me out. But early on, I started to identify and see in what in my head what success looked like. And I said the same thing to myself. It's like, oh, I want to be that person that goes to Cubs games at 2 o'clock in the afternoon that doesn't really have shit to do. They are so successful that they can go to Cubs games, you know, during the day, or they could go at the time when I was real young, we lived at um, Ashland and Taylor and there was a bar, which I thought was awesome called Hawkeyes right next to Rosebud. Uh, Later in life, I found out that that place was just a college bar, but we would walk past that when I was younger. And I'd be like, when I get older, I want to be successful so I can spend money on a steak and show up in a limo at Rosebud. And now I get older, I'm like, Rosebud's okay. You know, it's not all that. (laughs) But like yourself, I was the first person in my family to go to school. And so I think unlike yourself, I had people like you in my life that saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. When you walked into Continental for the interview, you were one of only. What was that experience like? Because University of Illinois there's a small population of African-Americans. And then when you play basketball, there's a population of African-Americans. What was it like for you to walk into that environment and consistently be the only one? And then there might have been some things said or done, like the fact that you only counted returns probably has something to do with you know, how you look. I really didn't look at myself as being an African-American at the time. And I'm not saying I acted white. I just thought, because I was a, so-called athlete, I played against black folks and white folks. So I looked at that in that manner. When I was working, I worked, I talked to people just like I would talk to them on the court. I didn't say, oh, okay, you're a brother, so I know you. No, I, everybody in the room was white. And so when they fired this person, I was a black person, they replaced a white person. So it's like sports, like this person goes down next up. 
That's how I looked at it. And I knew college allowed me to do some things that other people I wouldn't have done in the neighborhood. For example, you know, I knew how to play chess. I would play chess with them. And one of the things that's good about being an athlete, if you're good, you're going to be accepted pretty easily. Oh, absolutely. And so I was a pretty good chess player. And so we would play chess in our desks. And you would have to remember the moves and play them. And I was really good at chess. And so they were encouraged about that. I played on the office baseball team. And I was pretty good at that. So I was accepted with that. So even though I, I was counting returns, I was accepted like an equal. They would go out to bars. They would bring me with. And that's really funny. When I went out to the I wasn't married at the time. I was like 21, 22. That's how I met my wife. I was with these white guys. She was the only black person that walked in the room. <laughs> hey, you're black. I'm black. Let's talk. That's exactly what happened. And she was looking pretty nice, too. That has a lot to do with it. You were the president of Urban Bankers Forum of Chicago. What, what made you want to give, get involved, and why was it important for you to get involved? Urban Bankers, the leadership was individuals that were at least vice presidents. And so one of the things I did differently as the leader of the urban bankers, I wanted to be in a position to politically influence a lot of folks. I had an opportunity to meet the, the Jesse Jacksons of the, the, the world, bring other people from, you know, the Lieutenant Governor Ryan, all of those folks like that. We were able to meet because I knew they would influence where this organization wanted to go. So that was my vision. And being from Chicago, that vision allowed me to raise more money. You know, we raised every year anywhere from forty to $60,000 in one day in doing just the golf outing. And so I thought that was very important. But the previous years, we were raising anywhere from ten to $15,000. And so we really weren't making an impact on anything, you know, with 10000 versus forty to $60,000. Right. Right. And that's how I envision it. And so it's one of those things where people would say, if you know how to do it, you do it better. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And so I ended up doing it better, I thought. How many students during that period of time do you think you helped? I know I was one of them, but how many total do you think you helped? I was probably the only president that had three consecutive terms. Okay. <laughs> I would say each year we would do anywhere from 10 to uh, 15 students. If I recall correctly, the scholarship I think was... Two to four thousand dollars, but the biggest benefit was the internship. In my undergrad experience, the scholarship plus the internship pretty much paid my college tuition. You got to so, remember, we didn't have internships until I took over. Right. There are multiple benefits, right? So a lot of us went to school. We had no clue what the hell we wanted to do. But even if we didn't go into banking having an internship would allow us to at least put something on our resume. Not only did we get the internship, because we came in through that route, if there were specialists out, we got put right in there with them. I don't know if that was a part of the program or that was an objective, but they treated us like everybody else. Like right? equals. Yeah, like even if we were, so I think one year I was actually, I was in retail banking. I was a teller, which was probably one of the craziest experiences I had. Not bad. It was, it was actually much different than I thought it was going to be. And then I think I was responsible for corporate communication. So all the executive bios, I managed the bios. And then another time I worked in funds management, which was core finance. But all those different experiences allowed me to put them on my resume. For the most part, every organization I worked in, there was another African-American person there that would 
go take me out to lunch, you know, ask me how I was doing and whatnot. So there was a financial benefit. And then there was also the mentoring and the networking. I don't know if anybody's come back to thank you. It's one of those things I always tell people there's, there's like 10 or 15 things in your life that help change your trajectory. Like for you, it was running into the writer, right? For me, one of them was I moved to Little Italy. My aunt got cancer. I met some coaches. And then I was able to get this scholarship. It took a huge, significant burden off of my family to be able to pay for school. So you do this for three years. You continue to work at a bank now. But now we're standing in a restaurant in Austin. Up until this year, Austin was the largest, quote unquote, city neighborhood, designated neighborhood. Now it's been taken over by Lakeview. But Austin is also large. It has a high rate of crime. It has a high rate of folks that maybe didn't go to college. It's probably up there on some of the highest poverty rates. But worked in corporate America. You've given back to students, helping put students through school. But now we're standing right now at a restaurant, Ben's Barbecue. How did you end up here and talk about what you're doing here now? You know, at some point, you always got to retire. You have to move on and and do other things. I transitioned from corporate America to a private accounting firm. So I did that first. I worked at a group called International Tax Advisors. I did that for about 10 years. And then eventually I transitioned till I just had five or six clients. One of the clients that I had was actually Ben's Barbecue. And the owner who is uh, Linda Leslie, she's the owner. She had had some situations, tax issues that were unresolved that, you know, she was losing the business and she asked me to come along and help her out. So unknowingly, I just came to help out. And that's what got me here to begin to learn some stuff. And then as I began to do that, I decided to retire. And she said, why don't you just come to Ben's Barbecue and work? I'm like, why can't I do a Ben's Barbecue? I don't cook. You know, <laughs> so she said, well, try some things. So I, I did payroll and all the things like that. And then before you know it, she offered me an opportunity to be part of it. And as we began to do that, being in the financial arena, we began to actually act like a corporate institution. So we actually began to do things such as instead of raising prices, we raised price with a some theory behind it, why we were raising it. We began to modify our menu. We began to do some good strategies. And the Reader Magazine talked about us and said that we were something of the new age because we actually put some thought into making this thing happen. So that's what got me here. I learned a lot of stuff. You know, a restaurant is, yeah. it's really a hard job. I mean, you mentioned that you've gotten accolades for what you're doing, but you also get a lot of attention for not only what you do, but how you do it. One of the things that you do that is getting a lot of recognition throughout the city and the state is that you hire people with a history. So could you explain what that means, hiring folks with a history? We call it underserved. We have really taken the opportunity to hire folks that have been in prison. And some folks have been in prison 20 years some people have been in prison only five years. Right. And we asked ourselves, and this, is, this came directly from Linda Leslie. She said, if we don't hire them, who will? Using that as our rallying cry, we took it upon ourselves to begin hire folks. I mean, we also hire people who don't have backgrounds, but we began to do that. 
And so we took it to the city and we said, you know, this is what we want to do. We're in one of the highest crime areas in the city. It has the highest recidivist rate as far as people returning to prison. And we began to think about saying the only thing that they're missing, they don't have jobs. And we found by hiring folks, giving them jobs, they had some pride in what they do. And uh, especially with the men, you know, we have people now who've been here anywhere from seven to 10 years. So we believe it works. If they got a job, <laughs> now I'm not going to say we haven't had some folks that haven't went back to prison, but we had a person who went to prison and came back here again <laughs> after they had the job. You know, I don't want to sound like we sat back and had a strategy and said, okay, we're going to hire you know, people. We didn't do that. We actually, and I'm, I'm saying we, it was really a lot to do with Linda, who we began to do things for people mm-hmm. who couldn't make it. Right. We had folks that didn't have jobs. All they knew to do was to rob folks. And so one of the things I began to talk to people about, I said, well, instead of them robbing someone, we would give them an opportunity just to sweep around the restaurant, empty the garbage, clean the garbage. Not only did we sweep around the restaurant, we sweep the entire neighborhood. And so we said, let's give them something to do. And people have seen us do that as far as having people sweep in front of their houses and stuff. And they think that's the greatest thing we could ever right. do. And it's also allowed those individuals to make money. So they're not out there doing stuff like robbing folks and, and shooting folks. It's given us some respect in the neighborhood as well. Because <laughs> I hate to say this, when gang members are around, one of the things people will say, if they know something is jumping out, they'll say, Mr. Wyman, you need to go inside. <laughs> right, right. You have a credibility in the neighborhood with citizens that own homes, but also you have a credibility with some people that may not be doing things that you approve of. And they know that Ben's Barbecue stands for something, that you're about helping people and giving back. I've come over here two or three times now, and one of the things I notice is that your outside perimeter, and we're here right now, so people, if you hear the noise, the background noise, I'm, I'm literally on location right now at Ben's Barbecue. When you walk down the street, because you sit on the corner, your street is pretty much spotless. Like, I can eat off the ground. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't be eating, but I'm saying it's relative to some of the other businesses, your area is clean. And you're not even open today, but your areas are clean. Across the street is clean, which a lot of people just don't take pride in. And and that leads me to ask the question that all the other businesses see what you're doing. Why aren't they following that model? I hate to say this. um, You know, some of the businesses are here just to make money and leave. And we have been advocates. uh, We're talking to these other businesses and saying, not only do we want them to be prideful in this neighborhood, which they don't live, we've also asked them to hire someone like us because they're here, they're making the money, and they're leaving. One of the things that I've taken upon myself, and this is my project for this year, is that I'm going to try to establish some sort of jobs opportunities that would allow young folks that have gone to college to stay in the neighborhood. We're trying very hard to improve the restaurant so that we can develop managers, we can develop buyers of food, we can develop chefs, and those individuals will be right here in the neighborhood. Today, there's a flight of the young folks leaving because they believe they can't do anything except for going downtown. But we want them to do it right here in the neighborhood. If we can pull that out, that'd be really great because that's what we need to energize the Austin area. You're successful right now, and then you also partner with organizations outside of your own restaurant. Can you talk a little bit about the organizations that you're partnering with, specifically dealing with 
hiring folk with a history. We work with the aldermen of the 29th Ward. We've also worked with Congressman Danny Davis and also the mayor. The mayor has given us an opportunity to provide us with a grant to hire folks. So he believes in us. <laughs> we partnered with that side of the corner. And we've also met with the churches. We've met with homeless groups. And one of the things that we do here, and I got to say that, is that if someone is hungry, they don't have to come here and give an excuse and say, you know, think of some sort of lie to get something to eat. They just come in and say, man, I'm hungry. Just give me something to eat. We do it. We can have someone come in every day. That's okay. Because sooner or later, I have found when that person comes in the second or third time, they say, let me do something. Can I just sweep the area? You know, you know, I don't want you to give me anything. I just want you to give me an opportunity to do something. And that has gone a long way in what we have to do here. So we've partnered not only with that, we've partnered with the neighborhood, and we've partnered with churches as well as political organizations. We kind of went very quickly through your history. You know, the Urban Bankers Forum of Chicago. But I remember when I was in high school, before the Urban Bankers used to rent out the YMCA. And so anybody that wanted to come play for three hours basketball that may not have been playing on their team or they just needed to get away, you would pay for that, all of us to come together. And it was like Oak Park, Austin, the whole area would come. So they knew you as the the YMCA guy and your son was there as well. Then you went on with your businesses to give back for a person that didn't have what you call identifiable role model or someone to give you the map, you've kind of figured it out. You're doing that and you've done that throughout your life. Where'd that come from? You know, people say this to me and I try to answer this question. You're not the first person to ask me that question. Some people say, you know, God has touched you and all this stuff like that. And I say, it's just the right thing to do. My mother, she didn't graduate from high school. She was a single parent. And she gave us the belief that even though I never figured out why we moved so much. <laughs> I didn't know until I got older that she actually couldn't pay the rent. So we would move like every four, five months. I never even figured it out. I want to be able to know that if my mother did so much for me and she had nothing, I have something. So I have to do something for everybody else. Because if I don't, once again, who will? What do you see in the next five years, five to ten years for what you're doing over here in Austin? Well, one of the things I'm going to do, I think we need to improve the businesses over here that will enable young folks to stay. We got to have some stability. I didn't grow up as an entrepreneur. And we got to teach folks, we got to teach young folks that they need to be entrepreneurs. This is the opportunity for them to lead the way, to be in control of their life. Entrepreneurship, I just can't tell you how much that would bring to the table. That in itself makes you responsible. When you own something in the neighborhood, think about a renter of a home and a, a homeowner, the difference of what it makes. If you go in a neighborhood and you see a homeowner, he's going to pick up paper wherever it's at. A renter is going to say, ah, he'll get it. So I want people to have that responsibility in this neighborhood. And I think that's the most important thing. Because you got to remember, the gap that we have is that and the reason why things are the way it is, we have children raising children. We gotta have some sort of stability to make sure that this thing changes. And I and I believe, you know, people such as yourself, I really respect Farah 
you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I think he's, uh, I think he's amazing. I have a, a few other kids that, I'm sorry for saying kids, they're grown men now, they're oh, like 37, good. 38. It's all, it's all <laughs> you know, I have other young men that have come back and have told me. Some people call me coach, you know, some people call me, you know, Mr. Wyoming, but I still respond the same. I just believe that the future is through you guys. You know, this is the microwave era. I actually think what you're describing is this a millennial thing. Yeah. Just, you called it the microwave era. So talk a little bit about that. I just believe the young folks today, they want it now. And they want to be able to see it now. They have lost, I don't know if they are visionaries. I think you have to be a visionary to make this happen. If you don't have the vision, I think in the olden days, they say if you have a dream, if you have a vision, you got it answered. I sometimes yeah. struggle with that, right? Because yeah. young people will say, well, us young people didn't create the financial crisis. That was older people. Us young people, we created Uber. Us young people, we created Facebook. And I'm not a millennial. I'm somewhere in between. But I think what millennials want is they want to see and feel what they're working for, almost kind of like a, like a net present value. All right, I know that it's going to happen, but let me see it first. Let me experience some of it first before I work for you for 15 to 20 years. Or like, now I'm, I'm going to do something that makes me feel good until I really, really figure it out. And for us older folks, we're like, whoa, that's just completely different than how I did it. I worked hard, even though I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I worked hard, and then someone gave me an opportunity. Like you, you put your head down for six months, and you counted returns. And then when someone <laughs> quit or was fired, you're like, all right, I'm next up. Millennials, are, from my experience, are like, nah, I, I shouldn't have to wait. I just got this four-year degree. So I think it's like sometimes it's like a difference of, how I did it versus you did it, you know, like it's like being in a fraternity. The guy knows I shouldn't haze this person, but uh, you know what? Someone did it to me, and so I'm gonna do it to you. And it's like, wait, the guy's like, no, it's, uh, that's that's wrong. And then the person who knows not to do it is like, all right, well, it happened to me too, so I'm gonna do it. So I think there's a disconnect in in experiences, but I do believe that young people are all, obviously it just makes sense. Young people are the future. We can help create the sense of community and making the environment special, then you won't have the brain drain. You do have a, a good point about making home, whether it be Austin, North Lawndale, Auburn Gresham, Inglewood, making it a destination and not a place to get away from. Point well taken. And one thing I want to say is that, and I put this on all young folks' mind, I think you have to make your mark. This is important. In the early 30s, who had the thought of Social Security? There was no such thing. If we didn't have Social Security today, <laughs> just think of it. And that's what people have to sit back and say, I need to make an impact on life itself. And when I sit back and say, if they came up with Social Security, it's good for everybody. I should be able to do something that's going to impact everybody. You know, it could be minor. You know, you're... You're doing this podcast, and I'm spilling my guts about stuff. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I have some in-laws that one young lady, she's a professor, and her husband is an attorney. And they still continue to say, I want somebody to mentor me. No, 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 no. You got to go out there and do it. I'm going to leave you with this. My boss told me when I first came to the Continental Bank, and uh, he gave me that, the job of a tax person. He said, I'm going to give you an opportunity to fail. 
you're not going to get it right every time. But as long as someone knows that if you fail, it's okay. You're going to learn something from it. I think people today don't want to take that shot. They say, I don't want to do it unless I know it's right. But it's okay. It really is. Ben's Barbecue is located at 5931 West North Avenue. We have all of the latest gadgets, such as Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats. We have turkey tips. We were in Chicago's best for that. First restaurant in the Austin area to appear at Taste. Deeper Dish is hosted by Farah. Intro, mixing, editing is done by Alyssa Moxley. Produced by me, Farah. Our outro was performed by From Beyond These Walls, and the song is City of Dystopia. If you want to contact us directly, feel free to contact us at deeperdishshy at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, our handle is at deeperdishshy. Our website is www.deeperdishshy.com.